Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, I, I ask you a lot of times at the beginning of one of these, uh, beginning of the sermons to like raise your hand in response to a question. I'm not going to do that this morning. I thought about doing that, but I'm not going to. But I'm going to make this assumption about you. And that is that at some point you've had the experience of being moved by a piece of art, whether that was a painting, whether that was a sculpture, whether that was a movie or a song, there's something, you, it likely it, you've had this experience of observing something, taking in this experience, and being moved in a deep way by it, moved to tears or moved to awe or moved to just think deep thoughts or whatever it might be. And in a similar way, and pushing the similar buttons, I think it's likely that you've also had the experience of being out in nature somewhere and observing something in the natural world, something in the created world, and being moved in a similar way to the, the way that that piece of art might have moved you. Moved to, I mean, just weep maybe by a beautiful sunset or the, the vista of mountains before you or a lake or an amazing tree that you happen upon, whatever the case may be. We get moved in a similar way by nature like we do with art. And I think I find that's interesting because nature in some way is like art. It is actually created by an artist. It has a creator that has crafted it. And the way that it moves us, it moves us in that way because it was designed by an artist. And it pushes those similar kind of emotional buttons for us. This sermon this morning um, is going to be from Psalm chapter 19, the title of the sermon. I don't always title my sermons, but this one's titled God's Two Books. God's two books. And I got to tell you uh, this morning that um, I did not know what I was going to preach on until like dinner time yesterday, which I don't know how you feel about uh, public speaking, um, but that's not like a great feeling to know that you're going to have to stand up in front of a bunch of people in less than 24 hours and teach on who knows what. Um, I don't tend to wait to the last minute like that. I don't get nervous like I used to standing up in front of people and talking, but I do feel this sense of like, this is a big deal. This really matters to me to be able to stand up in front of you and, and share God's word and to be able to speak to you. I feel the weight of that. And so I don't sleep well on Saturday nights typically. And it's not the same thing as maybe when I first started preaching and the nerves I would experience at that time, but I still feel the sense of the weight of this moment. And so it wasn't a great feeling uh, yesterday and really all week to feel like I do not know what I'm going to preach on on Sunday morning. Usually I'm thinking about it all week. Um, I'm preparing for it for a good chunk of the week or at least half of the week. And this last week was different. Um, I was assuming this morning that I'd share something of Christmas related. We'd start some kind of Christmas series leading up to Christmas. And, I, and by the time yesterday... Uh, almost evening rolled around. I still didn't know what I was going to preach on. And then it occurred to me, and so I do have a sermon. In case you were wondering, you're like, where is this going? Does he have anything? Is he about to leave? No. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to share from Psalm chapter 19, as I mentioned. And this sermon, uh, the bones of this sermon, the structure of it was laid on my heart this summer. So in September, I got to spend 24 hours up in a place called Rivette Lake in the Thompson Pass area right on the, bo uh, the border of Montana and Idaho. There's a couple of trails um, that go off different places right on that border right there. And there's a beautiful spot called Rivette Lake, and I was able to spend 24 hours uh, by myself by this beautiful mountain lake and this vista around me. And this, this sermon was laid on my heart. I didn't know when I was going to preach it, but this was 
I guess revealed to me yesterday when I was considering what was I going to preach, was like, that's what you're going to preach, that, that, that sermon that popped in your head and your heart when you're up there by that mountain. Um, this is a, 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 from Psalm 19, as I mentioned, and it's called God's Two Books, and I'll explain what that means here in a, in a few moments. But I want to let you know kind of what to expect this morning, then what to expect the next couple of weeks. So if you regularly attend Life Roads, if you've been coming to Life Roads for a while, you'll note that our typical, what we do on a Sunday morning, and in this, at least in the sermon portion, is we will open up a passage of Scripture and we'll work through a book of the Bible or a certain you know, series that's built out of um, uh, certain types of Scriptures or things like that, and we will just work our way through that. And that's typically our steady diet here as a church. The word of God proclaimed, and how can we apply that um, to our lives? And the next few weeks will be that as well, but they're going to be a little bit unique in some different ways. As I mentioned, I thought this was going to be a Christmas sermon. It's not. It's just a sermon about, about Scripture and about God's two books and creation, as I, as I was alluding to earlier. Um, next week is going to be really unique. If you're new to our church, you're in for a treat next week, and I hope you'll give us some grace or... Uh, whatever next Sunday. So next Sunday is Joy Week of Advent, and we have traditions at our church that we uh, enjoy together related to that one particular week of the year. Um, And we will dress up in our festive Christmas attire, as Craig was talking about, or aka ugly Christmas sweaters, whatever the case may be. Um, And then we have something called a pastry potluck. We get together a little bit earlier than our normal service time. Encourage you to show up around 9.30. Bring some kind of baked good to share or a pastry donut, something like that. Um, And and we just spend a little bit extra time together, get to see what each other are wearing with our festive Christmas attire. And then we do something that I've never heard of another church doing. And I'll explain this even more next week. But it's something that we call sermon, amen, sermon bingo. No more explanation. Uh, If you're new to our church, you can ask somebody what that is all about, but you'll get to experience that next Sunday. So make, make, uh, make it a point to be here next week. And we're doing a baby dedication next Sunday, which I'm excited about as well for my, for my great nephew is going to be dedicated next Sunday. So that'll be fun. It's going to be a great, a great Sunday. Then Christmas Eve is the following Sunday. That's December 24th, like it is every year, but it happens to be on a Sunday this year. So rather than doing our normal 10 a.m. service time, we're going to be meeting that afternoon, 3.30, one combined service, as Craig mentioned. So that week will be a little bit unique. And then our last Sunday of the year we're going to do something together. Um, it's December 31st. New Year's Eve is, the, is on a Sunday um, as the calendar works out this year. And I want to take some time, and we're going to do something a little bit unique in our gathering on that Sunday, which is to reflect on the year, offer God some thanksgiving for the year. And I'm going to walk you through like a process of reflecting on the past year and thanking God for his provision, his faithfulness, the ways that you saw God at work in the year in the past, and then some special time of prayer for the year ahead. So the next few weeks are going to be a little bit different than what we typically um, would experience on a Sunday morning, but just to give you a little heads up about that. If I'm going to try to make a connection between last week's sermon series that we concluded and Psalm 19 today, it would be this. So last, the last few weeks, we were going through the series on the life of Joseph, and talking about how God was faithful to him during this time and all the brutality that he went through and all of these things. And, and that he was able to say to his brothers when he forgave them and reconciled with them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. 
And one of the main characters of that story, aside from Joseph and aside from his father Jacob, was his brother Judah. And Judah underwent a transformation over the course of that story. He went from being the ringleader and this bully of a brother to truly being changed and willing to give up his own life for the life of his brother. And over the course of the series, we, this, this tr- kind of transformation happened with Judah, and that just broke Joseph down at the point where he was, he was ready to just offer forgiveness and reconciliation to his brothers when he saw that Judah was willing to lay his life down for his brother Benjamin. Well, Judah had a descendant named David. David would later have a descendant many years later named Jesus. But the connection between these two uh, weeks, this week and last, is that the passage we're going to be looking at this morning, Psalm 19, was written by one of Judah's descendants, King David. And we're going to start reading verses 1 through 6, and then I'll point out, um, actually, we'll go through the entire uh, chapter here, and then we'll look at it portion by portion. But Psalm chapter 19, we're going to read verses 1 through 14. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer." So a little big picture look at this passage, and this came, I mentioned, from my time in the mountains, uh, just an overnighter that I did this summer and reflecting on this, on this passage of Scripture. But there's a, an exhibit that we went to at a place called the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. My wife and I and my, my family, we had some time off, and we went to this place called the Bible Museum, which if you're ever in Washington, D.C., you should go to the Bible Museum. It's really impressive. It's huge. It's beautiful. There's a lot of amazing exhibits, but they had one on science and the Bible. And a lot of times people will pit these two things together. They'll say science and the Bible or science and faith are against each other. And this exhibit was all about how they're answering different questions. There's some things that certainly science cannot answer, some things that scripture answers, uh, that, that science doesn't have any answer for. Like, what is love? What is grace? Like, you don't really see this in the scientific world as much. And so this exhibit was all about how God has two books, the created world and his scripture, his word, the world and the word. And that as we study the created world, we, we actually do learn some things about God. 
this idea of the two books, Francis Bacon, um, got a great name. Last name Bacon is pretty great. Right? He, says, he said, God has, in fact, written two books, not just one. Of course, we are all familiar with the first book he wrote, namely Scripture, but he's written a second book called Creation. And then Spurgeon, great preacher from England in the 1800s, he talked about how uh, the first volume of, of God's Word is creation, and volume two is his Scripture, and that he is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them. My father wrote them both. One of the things I love about Psalm 19 is that both of these books are included in this one chapter of Scripture. It begins by talking about how the heavens declare the glory of God. And then later he pivots to talking about God's law or his commands, his word um, are, is amazing. It's sweet. It, it enlightens the eyes. It, it gives life to the soul. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God, which I, I love this description. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. He's saying that creation itself, in the night sky in particular, or the, even the sky in the daytime, communicates things about God. It's telling us about who God is. It declares his glory. And I think it's important to point out that the night sky during David's time, that our experience of the night sky on a clear day, because of the amount of light pollution and street lamps and all these things, we, we don't see the same night sky that David did when he looked out on the fields. And he spent a lot of time outside. David spent many years as a shepherd. Then he spent years as a warrior. He would spend a lot of time in the outdoors, viewing the sky. And he writes in this beautiful way about creation. And another passage would be Psalm 8, where he's just talking about the beauty of God's creation and the, the beauty of the sky. When I consider the work of your hands, what is man that you are mindful of him? And he just reflects deeply on the beauty of God's creation. Um, that, that was another, there was another exhibit we saw. I think this one was at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum where they were talking about how different the night sky looks now compared to 100 years ago. Um, just barely before, it was like in the last 100 years, a little, little more than the last 100 years before almost every home had electricity. And even during that time, it was very dark, right? A lot of the time. I re read a book called At Home by an author named Bill Bryson who's a humorous um, writer. And in this book, he writes about just the history of things that we typically find in our home. And he talks about just the difference that electric light made when it became common to have electricity in people's homes. And he talks about how dark the world was just in, in the past, that in the, the, the lack of light defined the way many people spent their evenings. So in his book, he talks about a guest at a Virginia plantation back in the 1700s who wrote about her visit uh, to a, a place that he went to, and he says dinner was luminous and splendid, and he said that because there were seven candles at that dinner. It was just luminous. The room was full of light. He says to him, it was a blaze of light, Bill Bryson writes. He said, we forget just how painfully dim the world was before electricity. A candle, a good candle, provides barely one hundredth of the illumination of a single 100-watt light bulb. He says, open your refrigerator door and you summon forth more light than the total amount enjoyed by most households in the 18th century. 
Now, I'm grateful for electric light. I am truly grateful for that. But I do miss this idea, or I wish I, you know, I haven't really experienced this other than being out in the wilderness, of being able to look up in the night sky and just behold the glory of God by the galaxies and the Milky Way and all of the stars in the sky that are revealed to us. David's experience with the night sky would be something that we typically would have to travel far outside the city to capture what he would see on a typical cloudless night. But Scripture tells us that creation is communicating. This is God's first book, and it's communicating God's greatness Theologians use this term to talk about um, the goodness of God or the, the, the things that we experience um, as his general revelation or his common grace. There's two different words that theologians will use to describe this concept of we experience, whether or not you're a follower of Christ, whether or not God has any bearing on how you live your life, you experience God's common grace and you can witness God's general revelation out in creation. The Apostle Paul and, and Barnabas were traveling on a missions trip um, on one of their missions. And in Acts 14, they were in a city called Lystra, where they had uh, performed, God had worked through them and they'd healed somebody. And this healing had resulted in people directing their worship towards Paul and Barnabas. They believed that they were gods, you know. And so in Acts 14, verses 15 to 17, they point to the goodness of God in creation in this passage and correcting these people. We are not God, don't worship us. And here's what it says, Acts 14, 15 to 17. Men, why are you doing things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He's saying you, you've experienced the benefits of God's goodness and his creation in, in just the rains from the heavens and the fruitful seasons. He's the one who's made the heaven and the earth, and these things are communicating about him. My sermon will end, and we're grateful. I'm not going to go on the entire rest of the day. I'm grateful, and you are grateful for that. My sermon will end, but creation never stops communicating. I, we, may, we may close the Bible, we may cease uh, reading from Scripture, but his created order continues to communicate, and that's one of the points that, that David is making here in Psalm 19. And I want to say, too, that you, you need to receive God's revelation from his creation more than you might think you do. It's possible, at this time of the year especially, it's not, it's not as enjoyable to be outside when it's like this outside, but we need God's creation and the communication that it does. It does something for our souls. It broadens our perspective. It, it, it increases our um, sense of awareness about our smallness and God's bigness, which is good for us. I was listening to an interview this week with a neuroscientist, and he was talking about how when we are stressed, when we are um, going through um, stressful situations, our vision, our perspective narrows. It gets small. It might even get as small as a phone screen. And we just, our whole perspective gets narrowed and gets smaller and smaller. And we need sometimes to just get outside and take it all in and look and experience what we see and that can give us um, peace.
peace. I mean, that can, that can encourage us to be out in God's creation, can give us greater perspective on who we are and maybe on our troubles. We were singing that song that Craig, Craig pointed out the lyrics that lift up your face. You know, all who are weary, all who are broken, lift up your face. That we, tend, we need that sometimes to look up and consider the things that David was considering. The heavens declare the glory of God day to day pours out speech. And it talks about how there, this idea that doesn't actually use, in verse 4, th- verse 4 gets translated different ways in different translations, but it says, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Um, and it's this idea of communicating without using actual words, right? That creation is communicating, not in an audible way. I've never experienced that. Standing out there and it's like just words appearing in the clouds or something like that. I don't experience, I haven't experienced that. Maybe you have, that might be an interesting conversation. I don't know. We'll talk after the service. But it communicates to us in, in a, it communicates volumes about God's bigness, God's creation, God's power. The Apostle Paul talked about this. We went to Romans all summer long. And in Romans 1, Paul talks about God's invisible attributes are being communicated in his creation. Specifically, his eternal power and his divine nature. One more, one more thing on this idea of the, the, the way the heavens declare the glory of God. I want to tell you the story. This is from 1995, I believe. So the Hubble Space Telescope up there orbiting the Earth. And it's out of our atmosphere, and so it can get amazing images of what's happening in space, and specifically deep space. And in 1995, um, a scientist wanted to get a view of a dark part of the sky. That When you look up, you really don't see much there. It's right by the Big Dipper, an L-shaped spot in the sky. And he was going to use the Hubble telescope over a course of 10 days and the Hubble telescope is, is orbiting the Earth a number of times a day. I think it's like 15 times a day it goes around the Earth. And so it's constantly kind of focusing on this spot as it gets around the orbit of the Earth. And so for 10 days, with this slow, um, what is the aperture or whatever, like where the ex- long exposure images of this dark part of the sky. And I, to give you a perspective on how, how this specific part of the sky, that if you held a grain of rice out at arm's length up to the sky... That's the, the size of that portion of the sky that they were focused on for 10 days with the Hubble Space Telescope. And it was a little unclear. There were theories about what they might find after those 10 days. And I don't know that the screen behind me will do it justice, but I want you to take a look at the picture of what they saw. So this is an L-shaped picture. There's a corner of it missing here. But after they were able to put all these images together, and again, it's not as impressive on our, on our screen here. But what you're seeing here is what they discovered after that 10-day period of time and putting the images together. That is 3,000 galaxies in that one portion of the sky as small as a grain of rice. Creation is pretty amazing. When we consider the scale and the scope of what God has done, it gives us an appropriate sense of smallness and an appropriate sense of awe about God and his majesty, his eternal power, his divine nature. Creation is a book that we can read and we consider the works of his hands. It can help us understand things about God. But we need him to be more specific than what we see in creation. We do, we do see him speak eloquently about how, how big he is and how powerful he is. But we don't tend to learn about God, things like his grace or his love, just by observing creation. Bless you.
We, have you ever tried to watch a uh, nature documentary with small children and there's a scene where an animal devours an animal? Or like the wolf pack turns on the ill member of the wolf pack and they're like, you're holding us back and we're going to, you know, take you out, sorry. Um, and you try to like, the kids are just taking all this, like, oh, they're horrified when they discover how brutal nature can be. You know, there's a poet, Tennyson, who said, nature is red in tooth and claw. You don't see a lot of examples of love in nature. Nature can be brutal sometimes, avalanches, earthquakes, and all of these kinds of things. There are certain things that we need to learn about God specifically through his special revelation, which is what theologians would describe his, his word specifically recorded for us in Scripture, where God has spoken through his word. And we need both books And we actually need the second book even more than we need the first one. We need God's word. And David will devote even more verses to explaining the wonders of God's word and implying his dependence upon this, that he absolutely needs this. And I want to reread verses 7 through 11. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. His scripture, God's word, revives our souls. It makes the simple wise. It makes our hearts rejoice. It endures. It's completely righteous. We need God's word. And there's an absolute dependence upon God's word. It says we need it, describing it as honey. Right? Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Everything we, we have, we're surrounded by sweet things, right? Candy and stuff like that now. But during David's time, honey? That was like the sweetest thing imaginable, right? To have, this, have honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. And he says God's word is so sweet, It's wonderful. It's more to be desired even than purified gold, much fine gold. I want to say, too, that as we consider God's word, and we'll talk more about this in the new year. We always spend the beginning of the year talking about our spiritual disciplines and the importance of our spiritual practices. But you need God's word. Your soul needs God's word. Your spirit needs God's word as much as your body needs food. And we encourage you as a church to spend time regularly in God's word, to make this a part of your daily routine. We need this. David is saying that. We, I need God's word. It revives my soul. It gives light to my eyes. It gives light to the blind. We need God's word. I think there's, there's a special, unique power in opening both books at the same time. And here's what I mean by that. I think one of the things that was special to me when I was uh, up there backpacking for, for that one night this summer was I was engaging with God's word while observing his other book at the same time. And and I think that's a a healthy practice when the weather's a little nicer than it is outside, is to read God's word outside, to sit in a park, to sit in a backyard, to to take in the surroundings of God's first volume of his, his book, you know, while you're reading the second volume. I think there's great power to that. David, though, knows that engaging in the the revelation of God's works and his world and then his word, 
that when we do that, there's a response needed. And he says that specifically in verses 12 through 14. He looks outward at the beauty of God's creation. He looks to God's word, and then he looks at himself. And he not only reads God's word, but that he allows God's word to read him. He says this in verses 12 through 14. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Study God's word, but also let God's word study you. I want to say something that David couldn't necessarily say until his descendant came and, and paid the penalty for our sins. David's talking about being innocent and blameless, and he's looking to his own ability to carry that out. If I can, if I can fulfill this law perfectly, if God purifies me enough, I can, be, I can be blameless and innocent of great transgression. On this side of the cross, we celebrate that God looks at us and he sees Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ, if you received Jesus' forgiveness of your sins, when God looks at you, he sees you that way. You are innocent, you are blameless. And then our Christian life becomes, hey, I want to become what I already am. I want the way that I live my life to reflect this reality that's already true of me. That in Christ, I am holy and righteous and blameless. Now let me live my life today in a way that makes sense of that new reality. Let me live my life as a grateful response to the goodness of God and, and live in a holy way because he's made me holy already, but how do, I, how do I live in a way that fits with this reality? And because of Jesus, because of his gift of salvation for us, we can live that way. We've been made righteous before God. Now let's live in a way that makes sense with that reality. I'm going to switch gears here, and, and, and we're going to re prepare our hearts right now for communion. And I wanted to take a few extra minutes than we typically do to talk about what this moment means. We've been talking about Christ's goodness on the cross and the fact that he's purchased salvation for us, for any who would come to him. And we do this once a month. We celebrate communion. We're reminded of, the, of this time. But I wanted to take some, a few extra minutes today to consider what these moments mean. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's correcting them on a couple of things, and one of them is the way that they practice communion. And he says, we need to get back to the basics. I want to explain what communion is all about. And I tend to read from this passage as we celebrate and receive communion together um, once a month, because Paul uses the words of Christ in describing what, what communion is all about and what this means. But in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 32, he describes what communion is all about. I'm going to turn there in, in, in my Bible, and I'll read a selection of it here. He's, he's correcting the people in the church because they're, the way that they're carrying out the Lord's Supper, the meal that they're experiencing together, they're, they're celebrating together, he says, one goes hungry and one gets drunk. You're doing it wrong if you're getting drunk during communion, right? That's not... The, the, the right way to do it. And as he's correcting them, he's talking about what communion means. And I want to read verses 23 um, 
Well, we'll see how far we get here. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks and broke it, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He encourages the church to, to use communion as a time of, of examination, of considering where, where you are in your relationship with God. Um, it's this promise. It's like, some people would describe uh, communion as a covenant renewal ceremony, almost like when, when someone exchanges vows, with, they, they get married and many years pass and a lot of life happens, and, and then later they do a vow renewal which is something I've been able to be a part of as a pastor um, over the years and to, to, to kind of walk with somebody as they renew their wedding vows. And that communion is in a similar way. It's a chance regularly that we engage in to examine our own hearts and to say, I believed in you, Jesus, once upon a time. I was a child or it was years ago or whatever it was, but today I'm still in. I'm still following you. I'm still committed to this. I still believe you. I still want to walk with you. That every time we celebrate communion, it's an opportunity to remember and to renew what God has done for us. When we, when we celebrate communion, we're also looking backward. We're, we're looking back into a specific time in history where Jesus came and entered into this planet, what we are celebrating at Christmas time. He came, the incarnation, he lived his life here, lived a perfect life and then died the death that we deserved. And on the night before he did that, he gathered with his disciples and instituted this idea of communion, that we're gonna do this together to remember this sacrifice and this perfect gift of love that he offered us. So we're looking backward to a point in history, to something that happened, and we're remembering and we're proclaiming our belief in that. We also can look inward when we, are, are celebrating this communion time. And it's a chance, as I mentioned, this kind of vow renewal, covenant renewal ceremony, but a chance to even examine our hearts and say, God, is there anything in me that, that you want to deal with right now? Is there anything I need to turn from? Is there anything I need to give over to you? It's a, it's a chance to examine ourselves. And that's what Paul challenges the church at Corinth to do, is that when they celebrate communion, use that as a time for examining yourself. We also look forward to a day, a point in history, or when history is over, when, when time is no more and we're in the presence of God, we look forward to a day where we, in his presence, celebrate a literal meal, the marriage supper of the lamb or the marriage feast of the lamb, where we get to be with him. And I know these, this is not a substantial meal that we celebrate when we celebrate communion. It's very small. But we look forward to a day where we celebrate a meal in the presence of God, in the, in the company of the saints all through history, and we get to be in his presence, re, um, enjoying that marriage supper of the Lamb. There was a little girl who had gone to church, big church for the first time, and she was comparing her experience in big church to kids' church with her mom after the service was over. And she said, Mom, in, in kids' church, our, uh, the, the crackers are better and they give us more juice. 
Right. So I know this is not a substantial meal that we enjoy, but it's a little foretaste. It's a little sampler of the real meal that we will enjoy one day in heaven with God. I'm going to invite the worship team up here. I'm going to pray for us. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I thank you for your goodness and grace, and I thank you for the opportunity that we have to celebrate communion. I thank you for your two books, Lord, that you've given us, the beauty of your creation and the majesty of your word. And Lord, we need them. We need to learn about you and, and perceive you as the God who is big and who is good and who is creative and wonderful and has created the, the heavens and that they declare your glory and that we need to know specifically about your truth and your grace in this plan of redemption that we learn about from your word. And Lord, we, we, we need that. We declare a dependence upon you for that. And I pray that, Lord, as we consider the reality of the fact that we can, we can know you through your word um, and we, can, we learn about your redemption story that we're celebrating as we practice and participate in communion together this morning, I pray that you would use this time to draw us closer to yourself. Help us remember your goodness. Help us to proclaim your wonder and to say that we're still inv- this is still a part of our life. We still are your children. We, we want to follow you with everything that we have. And Lord, if there's anything in us, as David is praying this prayer of examination, saying if there's anything in my heart, presumptuous sins or any of these other things, or remove them so that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart are pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, use these moments as well for that sake. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together as a church and to worship you and to proclaim your goodness and to thank you for the opportunities um, that you've given us and the goodness that we've experienced because of your hand. So please bless this time of communion, bless this time of worship, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.